Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. We probably got to open here with an apology to Google and their servers because openfloormail at gmail.com has probably shut down the entire company. I guess we went after the Raptors, then LeVar Ball and Lonzo Ball. There was that whole sidetracking into the generic praise debate. You put all those things together and it's just been an avalanche of feedback from the Open Floor Globe. I love it. I know you carefully parsed through, what, hundreds of emails to come up with the best for today's <laughs> mailbag. I, I can't wait to yeah. see what you came up with. Yes, we have a, g- a good crop today. And honestly, it, it has been cool to see interest pick up over the last six months or so. Like, I, I seriously think we got like 100 emails in the span of like three days this week. Uh, so that was entertaining. Uh, ben and I read every single take. Um, but... The other thing that I wanted to mention is that we are officially halfway through the season. I was at Wizards Jazz Wednesday night, and uh, before the game, Quinn Snyder said that they that was their 41st game of the season, and I kind of did a double take. like I, I did not know we were that far along here, but we are, so I think we should sort of go bigger picture a little bit and take stock of uh, a couple teams that are sort of rising and falling this week it's a very smart idea good job no i knew we were at the middle mark I, you know i watch these things carefully but <laughs> look andrew we're 24 7 365 basketball you know there's these little milestones along the way but ultimately it's all one grand journey and we're glad everyone's uh, with us on it good good well what we're gonna do is play fact or fiction and we're also gonna use uh, a handful of questions from the listeners. And so we're going to begin with a team that we have not discussed more than once or twice for the past four months, the Miami Heat. Trey says, maybe talk a little bit about the Heat, only if you think they deserve it, Ben. I heard the rant about generic praise. And yet, we've won six in a row. We're 2-0 and against the Celtics, three games back from the Cavs in the standings, missing five rotation players. James Johnson's been out, Deion Waiters, Justice Winslow, Rodney Magruder, and Okara White. Uh, I'll start here, Ben. So we have a we have a coworker named Rohan Nadkarni on uh, SI, and he's we talk to him pretty frequently. And after every Heat win, he charges into the group chat and talks about how they won with half their rotation missing and. It's always hard for me to take seriously because you don't get to claim you won without like Okara White or Justice Winslow or Rodney Magruder because those players aren't actually good. So it's not impressive that the Heat are playing shorthanded if the players they're missing are bad. But beyond that one complaint about Heat discourse, they've been pretty awesome. And they like they were a team that I think a lot of people wrote off after the first couple weeks of the season because it's... They started ugly, and um, immediately this past offseason looked like a mistake, and everyone just sort of politely averted their eyes because it was depressing, especially after they were so much fun towards the end of last season. But they look pretty good right now. Well, I liked your criticism off the top. Unfortunately, though, you muzzled it. You know, you, you kind of smothered it a little bit. What you were supposed to go when you were naming those names, uh, who they haven't had, what you were supposed to do is, is take a shot at the biggest fish, and that's Dion Waiters. I don't think you get any credit for winning games without Deion Waiters. Have you seen his numbers this year? And look, one reason why I'm going to bring this up is because, you know, sources close to him were pretty upset about the fact that he was snubbed off the top 100 this year. And, 
you know, certainly he made one really cool shot last year and had an undeniably uh, great celebration afterwards, which he, you know, milked basically to no end. The guy is shooting 39% from the field, 30% uh, from three-pointers. When he's on the court, their offense is, uh, their rating is under 100, basically a team worst. He has not been worth the money that he got. He's not been anywhere near close to where he said he was going to be this season after signing this deal. Uh, And so it's no surprise at all that they're winning games without him. And it's no real coincidence that this nice recent flourish from them has happened while he's been sidelined with an ankle injury. Uh, You know, I was reading there's some discussion, you know, how are they going to handle things going forward? You know, if you're if you're Miami's front office, slow play that one. Like, don't be trying to rush him back onto the court. There's no need for that. Just go ahead and milk it. Um, Dude, the waiter si- situation is really was strange to me because it seems like everyone knew that he needed ankle surgery and he just didn't get it bef- because he wanted to sign that deal and the team was cool with that. It, like, it seems like this has been mismanaged every step of the way and now he i mean it he still needs surgery right and they're talking about bringing him back in a week or two like it the whole thing just seems off to me it's a great point now trey nailed it though in his question it is very difficult to discuss the heat without making it seem like generic praise uh spolster has become one of these coaches where he gets absolutely everything out of his roster and they and riley's you know just setting him up teeing him up perfectly with guys who are complete overachievers who are going to go above and beyond play hard scrap you know take every single regular season game like it's very important Uh, Uh and so that's why you have this disconnect i think between how well they're playing where they sit in the standings right now and then what most people would view as sort of their postseason ceiling and to me this is still not a team that really has uh, a major postseason ceiling i don't know if you saw zach lowe's piece on the heat today where uh, you know, he quoted Kelly Olynyk, kind of comparing this year's Heat team to last year's Celtics. I thought that was pretty apt. You know, all season last year, I kind of called the Celtics a cute story. I feel that way a little bit, uh, you know, about this year's Heat is you don't want to have to play them on some random Monday night in the middle of winter. And, you know, they're going to get scrappy like they did in Toronto the other night where, you know, they're you know, getting uh, egging on Ibaka to an ejection and they're getting under DeRozan's skin, uh, you know, after the buzzer and all that stuff. I mean, that's what they're good at. Uh, are they going to be able to play the matchup game? Are they going to be able to tighten things down rotation-wise in the playoffs? Are they going to have the star power that's going to step forward uh, against the elite competition? I, to me, those are all you know big-time question marks. So you kind of give them a golf clap, and you, you certainly tip your hat to Spolster and Riley <laughs> for uh, the environment they've created down there. But there's a reason why we only talk about them once or twice a season. I mean, that's sort of their pecking order at this point in the NBA. Okay, so my fact or fiction for the Heat was going to be the Heat are a scarier playoff team than the Raptors or Riz- or Wizards. It sounds like you would go fiction on that one, and I think I would too, but I, do, I don't think you're giving them enough credit for having this sort of athletes that will just be a pain in the ass in the playoffs, like James Johnson and uh, Hassan Whiteside, like Josh Richardson. I think that those guys will get better in the playoffs and be and be really tough to deal with. Um, I just think you're right that they don't really have like that top line scorer in the half court who is going to be the difference like in close playoff games. I think it, to, to really trust them, they would need someone like that. I will say that I I'm a little bit higher on the heat than a golf clap uh, because number one, I love Bam Adebayo. Uh, number two, Josh Richardson has been really, really solid for the past like month to six weeks. Um, 
Number three, I've really enjoyed watching the way they use Wayne Ellington. He's kind of like a, a basketball version of a designated hitter. Like they just sort of like throw him all over the court and run him off screens. And like half the time, their entire offense is just trying to get him open looks. And he takes like 10 or 11 threes a game. And it's just pretty entertaining because I don't think Wayne Ellington has another skill beyond three-point shooting. And uh, it's it's kind of taking the new era to its extreme where like he's well, literally only out there to scare teams from three. And I love it because year after year, teams sign guys like Wayne Ellington or Jody Meeks over the summer and the fan base gets so excited because they're like shooting. Yes, we did it. And it's like that one, or another one is uh, Anthony Morrow. You know, we've seen these yeah. guys just kind of bounce <laughs> around the league and, you know, the idea of that player almost invariably exceeds what that guy actually brings to the table over the course of an 82 game season, because a lot of times those shooters can't play defense or uh, teams key on them and kind of take them away a little bit, limit their effectiveness. This is like the ultimate season from Wayne Ellington for these guys. Like all these other one trick ponies around the league can be like, yes, you know, Ellington's finally fulfilling the destiny that the fans totally. uh, hope for, you <laughs> know, during that off season optimism actually worked. It's pretty impressive. Uh, the, all right, so the last thing I wanted to say, though, is to me, the big question with Miami, I think they're really solid, and their ceiling is relatively low for the next few years, but this isn't the worst stretch of NBA history to have a low ceiling, because like even the teams with a high ceiling can't do shit with the Warriors, so like the Heat are going to be fun for the next couple years, and then they'll kind of reset in 2020, so we know that, but the one thing that I really wonder about is whether they can get rid of Whiteside because watching Bam Adebayo like emerge over the last couple months, he basically, he, do, he doesn't get playing time very often, but whenever he plays, he looks really good. And like I was at Heat Shootaround uh, about a month or two ago, and you could sort of sense among the, the media there that everyone was kind of lukewarm on, on Whiteside. And so I wonder like who, who they could dump him on like maybe maybe it's the clippers maybe i i would the blazers have any interest because i feel like the one lesson from the first couple months is that the heat can win without Whiteside and might be better without him yeah so going back to your question on factor fiction in terms of like their playoff scariness versus teams like toronto and washington i mean that's a tough question for you to pose because we're, we're not totally sure the wizards are going to make the playoffs at this point so i kind of reject <laughs> that comparison but, sure, uh, fair enough. <laughs> str- strong point about Whiteside. I'm not the biggest Whiteside fan. I think it'd be very, very difficult to move him. Uh, not just like a personal attack on him. Just, you know, centers are, are tricky to move, especially when they have big dollar deals. And there's a lot of compromises that go into bringing a guy like that onto your roster. You got to give him a lot of touches, keep him invested. Uh, he's inconsistent up and down. I think that makes a trade pretty difficult. In terms of like how fun they're going to be going forward, you're not worried at all about Goran Dragic in terms of, you know, this guy has kept things going along a little bit longer and better than I think most people expected uh, these last mm-hmm. couple of seasons. But you know, the the clock is ticking. You know, I mean, we're starting to see some signs, I think, with him. And, uh, you know, I just, I guess, defend the fun factor. Like, why is this going to be so amazing next season? I'm not sure I see it. Well, I mean, it's fun now. Like that Raptors game on on Tuesday night was fun. They beat the Pacers. Uh, I think they're better than a team like the Pacers. And like Indiana was getting a lot of love to start the season. But I think the Heat have 10 good players. They don't really have any great players, um, which is a problem. Like once you get to the postseason, but it's going to be fun to watch them just sort of 
manufacture wins kind of out of thin air a lot of times because like a guy like Josh Richardson is not, I don't think he's going to ever be a star, but he, he'll be fun to watch and they, they kind of just grind. Yeah. I, I don't see this team as all <laughs> that fun to be honest. I'm not okay. trying, like I'm with you on the, on the Josh Mostly Richardson stuff. I just stuff. like Wayne Ellington. Let me just say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's a tough marketing slogan, I, but I've seen their hashtags <laughs> recently. They're trying hard to get him in the three point contest. You got to respect the, the local teams doing that for their players. But uh, yeah. I'm with you on the Josh Richardson stuff. You know, remember before the season, I kind of coined them the medium 10 rather than the big three. It sort of played out that way. And so, again, it goes back to your point, like how much credit do we give them when they have guys who are injured? I mean, that's they're sort of built to sustain the, uh, injuries midseason and keep going in a way that a lot of teams with higher ceilings, you know, aren't quite. Uh, right. I would they're say interchangeable in a bad way. It's almost a criticism. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of surprised me about them is I really thought Justice Winslow was going to be like a key portion to all of this. Like I thought uh-huh. you know, I was kind of in on him, you know, and people might be surprised because he's obviously clearly a non-shooter, uh, but he's one of those guys who makes up with it, uh, with everything else that he does on the court. And, you know, he's kind of missed some time and stuff too. And it doesn't really seem like they miss him. So uh, I don't know where he's going. You know, I think that's one question for the heat in terms of like, if they're going to be really fun, if they're going to be a team, you're going to talk me into making, uh, you know, a, a deep postseason trip that matters here in the ne- next couple of seasons. I still view him as a major X factor. And, uh, I was totally buying into him, you know, coming into the draft. And now I'm kind of feeling like I'm stuck with my stock. Yeah. I mean, coming into the draft, people were talking about him potentially growing into like a Kawhi role on the wing, but that only happens if the jumper emerges and it hasn't. Um, so now it sort of looks like his, his only viable future is as a four and there just hasn't been playing time for him in Miami in that role. Um, so I, I would love to see him on a different team and get out in a team that plays in space and will put him at the four or even the five sometimes and just sort of let him, be that small ball Draymond type player uh, as opposed to like he's just been miscast in Miami and it's not the Heat's fault either because there have been better players there but um, I'm I'm pulling for Winslow. One of the best developments of this season is how far you've fallen in love with super small ball. It really is amazing. You've <laughs> you, you've come all the way around to it. You it's want Giannis to play to live, center. Man. Sorry, it re- it really is. I love it. You know, Winslow at center. We need you in charge of all these teams so we can have nothing but six foot nine and shorter lineups, and the game will be great. Yeah, exactly. And Wayne Ellington on the wing. Um, all right, let's move on here. Sean says, "Are the Wolves scary?" I watched them demolish the Cavs, and then they beat the Thunder, and I'm trying to define how we should think about them. Perhaps tons of offensive talent, severe limitations on defense, and a coaching strategy that creates massive physical liabilities. And yet, they're pretty good. They're fifth in offensive efficiency, despite running the slowest pace among all top 10 offenses. They rank second in lowest turnover rate. uh, Sorry, they rank second lowest in turnover rate. And top six in two of the other four factors, plus 3.6 in net rating. And currently, all five starters have a net rating above six. So, Ben, my factor fiction here, the Wolves would beat OKC in a seven-game series. What do you think? Well, I think if both teams are fully healthy, I'd still go for the Thunder. And I think a a big part of why like, I look at OKC's recent inconsistency, and you can point to that game against Minnesota the other night, too, is like, 
remember I had two grievances with Oklahoma City coming into the season. First, I didn't think the stars were really going to mesh. Second, they have zero depth, right? And what you're seeing is even if a guy like Robertson misses time, they're hopeless. Their entire bench scoring is is two words right now, Raymond Felton. That is also another two-word phrase, big problem. If he's the only guy who's giving you anything off your bench and you're just trying to plug and play these complete non-scores into your starting lineup uh, and they're not going to be defending on the same level as uh, Robertson, that's a big big issue. So you take one guy off Oklahoma City, uh, they're a completely different team. You give them everybody they've got. I still think they're pretty scary in the postseason. Now, in terms of Minnesota, uh, much like this Waiters thing, am I the only one who noticed that all of a sudden sudden Minnesota started clocking teams when Jeff T got injured? I mean, big time, (laughs) double digit victories over Pacers, Lakers, Pelicans, Cavaliers. And this is another little brief mea culpa, mea culpa. When they took Tyus Jones in the draft, I hated it because I hate when people go for the the local uh, home hometown hero angle. Uh, uh-huh. you know, it's the same same grievance I had when they brought back Kevin Garnett for the second go around of like, oh, he's an institution in Minnesota. I mean, his second time there, he barely played. He couldn't give them consistent minutes. He was getting this gigantic, you know, eight figure salary, not really doing a lot. And so I kind of maybe got blinded a little bit into the anti KG sentiment in going against Tyus Jones too. It just seems so transparent uh, and just kind of like a ploy to the fan base and, and building up, you know, their, their local relations. Uh, Tyus Jones really has made them tick here over the last couple of weeks, you know, without Teague, they're playing their, you know, their on off numbers with him on the court are significantly better, man. I never would have seen that coming, uh, you know, over this last couple of seasons. And, and I don't know if Teague's got to be worried about his job, uh, but I do wonder, like Thibodeau, after giving all that money to Teague and then watching how the T plays when he's not out there. I mean, what's going through his head? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't think it's fair to just credit Tyus Jones here because we were pretty hard on Carl Towns and he's gotten a lot better defensively over the last month or so. Uh, but I also, the Wolves, I mean, it's a good question from Sean because the Wolves, to me, are the biggest wild card in the league uh, in terms of their ceiling, like what they really are, because they've looked great this week. I mean, they beat the Cavs, who are not just they are. This is one of the months that they decide not to play defense, which is fine. Uh, that's their prerogative. And the Thunder have been, like you said, they're kind of a mess without Roberson in there, but their defense completely falls apart without him uh, locking guys down on the perimeter. And so... Like, I don't want to read too much into it because they also were in Boston last Friday and looked flat the entire game. And I I think I texted you, like, T- Tibbs was pressing. The, the Wolves were down 10 or 15 in the final, like, two minutes. And, and Tibbs was running a full-court press with his starters out there. They were playing the Pelicans the next night in Minnesota, like less than 24 hours later. And like, I think cat played 42 minutes that night. So it's not like nothing has changed on that front. And so it's just, is still kind of dangerous to, to trust this team because Wiggins still has his issues. Like he's, he's scoring a little bit more, but he's, he's had issues at the, at the free throw line all year. I think he's at 62%. And so I don't know, man, I think that if, once you get to the playoffs, like OKC Minnesota would be an awesome series, and to me it's a toss up. Uh, but I just, I, I, and I th- if the question is whether the Wolves are legitimately 
one of the three best teams in the West. Like I don't I don't think they're they're in the conversation with Golden State, Houston, and San Antonio. I would hope no one would put them into that conversation. I mean, they're scarier well, I mean, than we anticipated coming wise, into the season. They're, they're close. Yeah, come on. I mean, don't 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 be crazy. <laughs> I think part of it, a few things going on here. First of all, their main guys have been perfectly healthy all year. They're top three. I mean, that take one of those guys off the court, they're going to run into a lot of the fluctuations uh, in terms of how well they play immediately. Uh, I'd say second. I like how their offense has performed. Like the emailer mentioned, it's been, you know, top five, top six, you know, basically all, all season long or, or up there. Do you trust it in the postseason? I'm not sure I do. I think a guy like Wiggins, and, and I've pretty adamantly defended Wiggins from criticism for most of his career. Uh, he's the type of guy who you would expect his first time at the playoffs. He just disappears and no shows and his efficiency goes away once he's not getting calls, once he can't really shoot from outside, once teams are locked in on him playing the matchup game. I would expect him to have a very rough time in his first playoffs, uh, basically no matter what. Uh, I also think, you know, some of their offense, you know, do they pass the ball and move the ball quite well enough to, mm-hmm. you know, overcome the the rocky patches that are invariably going to come in the postseason? You know, I have uh, kind of a question about that. I mean, they, they've, you know, they're middle of the pack in terms of like assist rate this year. But when you're going against these elite teams, especially teams that are locking in defensively in the postseason, is that good enough? Or do you have to be sort of elite in terms of getting scoring from every single position to be able to do it? Uh, that holds them back from, you know, being kind of scary in my eyes. And then in terms of the, you know, the point guard position, and you mentioned their improvement, you know, defensively, and Townsend's been getting a lot of credit defensively recently. I think some of that goes back to the fact that Teague's not out there on the ball. You know, I don't really trust Teague as an on-ball defensive uh, player in a postseason format. And so, again, it's that kind of question of how do you handle those minutes going forward? I, th- I think that's one of the bigger things for them to look at here. Uh, all those things kind of hold them back to me from being someone who we should truly think of as a scary team. And, you know, yeah, if they have one fair. injury, look, and, and be honest, if Jimmy's out for two weeks, uh, are you still going to call them scary or, or are you going to just avoid their games for the entire two no, weeks? No, look, I'm not even calling them scary. I'm not, they're, they're fucking confusing. Like I, there are some, some nights when they look really scary and the future looks crazy bright. And then there are some nights like in Boston a week ago where you're like, man, this team looks miserable. And so it's just, it's really hard to sort of pin down the real story with Minnesota. But uh, I think you're right. Teague, that, that signing is just never going to make sense to me. I don't understand why they went that direction. And I, I'm sure there are a lot of Wolves fans who are, who are also kind of angsty about that. Um, but that is a, you, you honed in on kind of the, the weak link there, if, if not Wiggins. Um, but speaking of point guards, we should move on here um, because we talk about the Wolves at least once a week and it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, but Another one of our favorites, Ty from Portland says, I've been thinking about the OKC top two, general consensus, and the SI top 100 would say that Russell Westbrook is better than Paul George, and I understand why. But if the top teams in the NBA could add one of them to their team, I still think the majority would take Paul George. Houston, Cleveland, Golden State, Boston, Minnesota, and Washington all would choose George. Westbrook has more individual talent than PG, but I think PG's skill set might be more valuable for elite elite basketball. What are your thoughts? 
Uh, so fact or fiction, Paul George is more valuable than Westbrook. I don't know why we're doing this fact or fiction game, but whatever. Um, so I would uh, the one caveat that I would add to his uh, his question, I think Cleveland, considering LeBron's influence, Cleveland might stupidly take Westbrook over Paul George uh, if given the option. But uh, everyone else so. on that list would take Paul George. So what do you think? Well, first of all, the positions thing here is important. You know, all the best teams in the league have elite primary ball handlers or, or lead guys, whether it's Curry, Harden, LeBron. All those guys are definitely better than Westbrook at this point, period. Yep. And I think th- what he's kind of hinting at here is the transferability, I think, of, of Paul George's skills. That's something we talk about in the top 100 all the time is, you know, can you guy- drop this guy on a random team and, and get the most out of him? And Paul George is right up there among the top guys in the league in terms of having very transferable skills, in part because he's not, you know, a true alpha guy. I mean, he's better in that, you know, kind of number two role. Uh, Mm -hmm. And also in large part because he's a very, very, very good uh, two-way player, contributor on both sides. I mean, he is kind of, you know, the the best of these guys that everyone wants. I mean, I'm sure everybody saw Woj's, you know, trade column where he mentions that everybody's on the hunt for wings. Well, you know, Paul George is exactly that archetype of what you're looking for in terms of, you know, elite defensive player, uh, you know, can guard three or four different positions and then offensively can kind of, you know, fit in around your main guy and, and still be a, you know, a really quality volume scorer. Uh, so you know, I think most, I think the emailer is correct. Most teams would prefer elite teams would prefer to have Paul George, but that's because they've already got one lead ball handler and you don't need, you know, multiple guys in that position. Usually, uh, you'd prefer right. to have that extra wing who you can throw at, uh, your opposition's best player. So, uh, I think everybody would kill to have Paul George. That's why he's always in these trade discussions and uh, free agency discussions for sure. And not just good teams. I think everybody wants him, you know, right down to the Lakers. Um, and I think it, this kind of proves why it was the right decision for Westbrook to take his max money. I mean, there's other teams out there who would have wanted him, but there was no question that his best situation was an organization that was willing to pay him every single penny that they could pay him and willing to make him the alpha and the omega and build the whole show around him. Uh, there aren't a lot of other uh, organizations who were kind of in position to do both of those things. And uh, for that standpoint, uh, you know, he, he made the right call there. He's sort of life partners uh, with the Thunder. You know, I think uh, he's not going anywhere. And, you know, Paul George, you know, until he finally signs a, a long-term contract is going to continue to be one of the most coveted names in the league. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the question about value and placement in the top 100 is, is an argument we've had t- too many times at this point, but I think it is interesting, like, if, if the question is who's better, you can make an argument with Westbrook that if, if he's your only star, Westbrook can take you further than Paul George can. But yeah, that's the correct it, argument. That's, that's the yeah, right argument. Westbrook still but, deserves to be above him, but that's a, a different question. But I also think that like the e- the way the emailer framed it, I th- he s- Ty says I think PG's skill set might be more valuable for elite basketball. I think bottom line, w- no caveats. If you're trying to win a championship, Paul George is more valuable than Russell Westbrook because I think Russell Westbrook puts a ceiling on what the team can be because for he just I I don't want to say he he like actively holds teammates back, but he. Sp- keeps them from being like the best version of, of themselves, which I guess is the same thing. But, uh, you know, he just, we don't need to 
to overdo it on the rush bashing, but I think the there's definitely been sort of a correction on his his value this year. Um, I, I it's almost more interesting to ask whether Jimmy Butler is straight up better than Russell Westbrook at this point. I'm going to push back on what you said because I think you have a pretty hard ceiling on your team if Paul George is your best player too, you know, and that's what we're kind of getting at with the value in terms of like we saw it in Indiana when Paul. Yeah, I mean, look, what what did you think of the Pacers last year with Paul George when he was their best guy and the whole thing was built around him? I mean, they couldn't even string together two consecutive wins. It was like win-loss, win-loss, win-loss the whole season. Right. Nobody was excited. Nobody was inspired by him. You know, look, I have been a Westbrook critic all season long, but I think that would be going too far because I still think you can get quality contributions. I mean, he does make certain types of guys better. Uh, you know, Steven Adams, I think that they play pretty well together. Uh, you know, a guy like Robertson's able to be on the court in large part because of Westbrook pre- Westbrook's presence. So I think there are certain types of guys uh, who can succeed alongside him. Yes, there's absolutely a hard ceiling on how far his team is going to go because he doesn't make other stars better. Uh, but if you're just throwing Paul George out there as your team's best player and saying, hey, good luck, you know, go go as far as you can, you're going nowhere. No, but what I, what I mean is that if you make Paul George a piece of a championship puzzle, he he makes sense. Like, I'll buy that story. Like, if the if the Celtics had traded for Paul George in June and given up, like, the Memphis pick or any number of the bullshit picks that have been in thousands of Danny Ainge rumors and, and brought Paul George to Boston and then gotten Kyrie... Like that to me is a is a team that could really challenge for like Eastern Conference Finals, Finals level teams. Whereas I don't know if Russ is ever going to be on one of those teams again without KD in, in Oklahoma City. That's all I mean is that like if he Russ doesn't really fit in a in a title winning context at this point in his career. Uh, I think the context would have to be built around him, which would make it a very delicate build. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's almost like a Jenga built out of Legos. I mean, that would be really dicey, you know, <laughs> su- subject of falling over. But uh, this is why I wanted Paul George traded to the Cavs for nine months, Andrew. You know, come on. Like, you're, you're yeah. preaching to the choir well, on this look. one. I mean, he is that kind of guy who could take you over to the top. Uh, there's no question. And uh, I don't think we should necessarily dwell on Westbrook's negatives too much here because he did kind of save their season. You know, I mean, if he doesn't turn it around, if he doesn't start playing better, uh, that team would have blown up. And I think he has done just enough uh, to keep Paul George there uh, for the rest of this season. And, you know, you don't get a ribbon for that. That's not an award, uh, but (laughs) it's probably not the right time to just go all out assaulting him as a, as a player. I all I'm saying is that if you want to get real with that conversation, like I, I do think that the emailer is right. Anyways, let's move on. Uh, a couple more here. Lucas says, if you were in control of the Clippers, what would you do? Would you trade DeAndre Jordan and maybe Blake and try to ch- uh, tank for the future? Or would you try to load up with a little bit more talent at the guard position and try to make a playoff push? Would you think about... <laughs> this is great. Would you think about moving the team out of L.A.? First of all, if I personally owned the Clippers, I would definitely move them to Seattle. But beyond that, what do you think of the Clippers? Are they making the playoffs? Fact or fiction? Um, I probably still lean towards fiction, but it's really close. And it's again, getting close, right? We're straying into the generic praise territory, but you can't say enough about the job Doc Rivers has done. And those are not words that I would have <laughs> thought I was going to say. But I mean, these guys are playing literal no-namers. And I was talking to... 
you know, Clippers employee recently. And I mean, imagine working for that team. Blake goes down. You assume your season is over. You assume, uh, you know, you're going to be the next Grizzlies, right? I mean, the wheels are going to fall off. You're probably going to have yeah. to trade DJ immediately. You're going to have to fire Doc. Uh, you know, at, at one point of the season, you know, we were getting ready to discuss like, could they hire Fisdale midseason, you know, and like start, you know, just get a jump start on whatever the next era of the Clippers is going to be. The fact that they've put these wins together with complete no-namers, two-way contract guys, people who have never had NBA reputations before, it it boggles the mind. Uh, obviously, right now is a uh, perfect time to praise a guy like Lou Williams, who, you know, comes through with 50 points the other night, but not just that 50 point. He's had multiple 40-point games this season. He's been great. He's been, he is, Lou Williams is lord of the bucket getters as, as of this year. I think he's taken over the mantle from Jamal Crawford, and it's been awesome to watch it because, like, the Clippers... When Blake was out, they had no other option but to say, say, Lou Williams, just go score 30 a game and try to give us a chance. And he's done exactly that. And it's been so much fun. Yeah. And they're in prime position if somebody else does stumble. I mean, New Orleans, Denver, I mean, their margin for error is zero with the Clippers kind of like nipping at their heels. So that's going to be a fun little bubble uh, watch the rest of the way. Now, with all of that being said, you know, here comes sort of like Debbie Downer. I would still <laughs> trade DeAndre Jordan. Uh, and that probably feels blasphemous at this moment for them just because, you know, the the momentum has been there here at the last couple of weeks and because their season didn't get salvaged and so forth. But, you know, long-term big picture, what's in the best interest of the franchise? Like gutting out an eighth seed and talking yourself into that or, you know, trying to chart a new course. And that would be a very difficult you know, uh, plug to pull because DeAndre has been there for years. He's friendly with all the guys, kind of life of the locker room. Uh, you know, he, he is you know, a major reason why they've been able to kind of get through these you know, tough times recently and and transfer out of the Chris Paul era. But I still think it'd be the right move to trade him. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think that they're going to have attractive offers for DeAndre. So I think that ultimately that problem is going to be solved for them or that question is going to be answered for them because I just don't see the team that's going to make them an offer that really makes sense, um, which, again, like is the problem that they've had anytime they try to move on from, from DeAndre, is that ultimately keeping him makes more sense than, than losing him for nothing or losing him for 20 cents on the dollar. Hey, actually, uh, let me ask you one question real quick, though. You know, we all thought Blake was gone last year, or we at least thought that was possible, right? Could we see uh-huh. a, a case of history repeating itself where everyone just assumes DeAndre is going to leave because they don't have this like top three seed ceiling in the near future and you know, he's an all-NBA guy in his prime? Is it possible he just uses very Blake Griffin-like logic and says, this is the only place I've ever known. Uh, we're competitive. I it's love my life. Not a bad I life. live in LA. Yeah. They're going to throw a bunch of money at me. I have zero pressure. You know, it's not like it matters if they win a title or not at this point of their lives. Like, couldn't you see DeAndre, like, kind of repeating Blake's decision-making and saying, hey, I'm just going to be here long-term? Is that possible? Yeah, definitely. I'm really curious what kind of market there will be for him uh, because, I don't know, there just isn't going to be very much money available next summer, and DeAndre plays a position where there there's less value than there was even three years ago. Um, so I I wonder like how those negotiations will play out. But that's definitely another reason I've thought that maybe they won't trade him because he may not necessarily have 
like a ton of suitors next summer and they may be able to sign him for less than the 150 million dollar max or whatever whatever the number is it may come in lower than that um which would be a win for LA and and still a win for DeAndre like if he signs for 125 million he'll be he'll be okay um but would you look answer- down on him at all if if he went back i mean would you say hey you know you're not a real competitor you know you you're no, kind of settling for what's a- known no, that's a Gulliver move to look down on him for that. I, I think if I were him, I would say, yeah, I would much rather just live in L.A. and have an amazing life than go lose in the second round of the playoffs with Milwaukee or something. You know, like I don't, I don't think that the, the perfect situation is out there for him. So if, if it ends up being that, that L.A. will pay him, then staying makes a lot of sense to me. The, the, as far as the Clippers in the playoffs this season – I really think they could they could make it. And I was very down on the Clippers to begin the year, in part because I, I saw a Blake injury coming. I saw the, the Gallinari injury coming. And I kind of just figured that the season would unravel from there. But now that they've sort of made it through that worst-case scenario, mostly intact, I think... I mean, you look at the Pelicans, like I, I'm not going to trust the Pelicans to make, to actually make the playoffs and keep it together down the stretch. And the jazz, I mean, they were in DC, they beat the wizards Wednesday night, but I just, it's hard to, to really buy into them too. And they're also a couple games back from, from the eighth seed. They're behind the Clippers. Like, I don't know. I, I, I think I trust the Clippers more than anyone at the at the bottom of the West. And it's it's also it's a much lower bar than we expected. Like if the Clippers win forty three games, they should be in. Yeah, you trust the Clippers more than the other teams, but I guarantee you don't really trust the Clippers. So I mean it's no, just you're like, right. it's a lesser <laughs> of like seven evils there. No, I think um we also should, you know, in point of fairness. You, you mentioned that they've gone through sort of the worst of times and they've come out the other side. It could always get worse. If we've That's learned true. anything about this franchise with their health fuck, I mean, there's always another shoe to drop potentially and you don't wish that on them. But uh, at some point, you just got to wonder whether they're you know facing those same kinds of questions for a valid reason. If, that, if those questions are just going to dog them the whole way. And I guess in their defense, they have every reason to gun all out for wins. And they do have veteran players, you know, down the stretch, like you're saying, holding up. They're not doing this with, you know, a bunch of young guys. I think that will help their staying power. Uh, But, you know, where does this end? I guess that's also my question, too, is like they're the easiest first round out ever. It'd be a moral victory to make the playoffs. But uh, that's why I think they should be really investigating their options here at the deadline. Yeah. Well, all I know is I trust Lou Williams. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. All right. One more fact or fiction for you. Fact or fiction, Lowry Markinen has as high a ceiling as Chris Dapp's Porzingis, okay? We got an email from AJ who, who said, if Golliver wasn't a vegan, I'd definitely tell him to eat crow regarding his Bulls takes throughout the season. So what do you, what do you have to say about the Chicago Bulls thus far? Did you see Eddie of Lowry against Chris Daffs last night? Yeah, so I'm wondering why you and AJ feel the need to ask this question after the best day of his life. Like, Lowry's best day of his entire life obviously was yesterday. So now you're going to come out and both of you together hold hands, run around, and cheer about this new world order that's emanating from America's second city, Chicago. I mean, come on, man. You're better than this, Andrew. Haven't we talked about this, understanding that uh, you know, you don't judge people off of their very best days. You try to look for the the middle route, not the the ultimate peak or the ultimate low. Uh, 
have a little bit of perspective, Look, please. man, Lowry is bombing threes. <laughs> he just is, okay? I'm not, I don't want to overdo it on Bulls hype. I don't want to say that Nelson Bighead Baghetti deserves executive of the year for swinging that Lowry trade on draft night. Uh, and granted, like the one thing with that Bulls-Wolves trade is that the Bulls' failure to get the or to keep the 16th pick they gave that to Minnesota is just insane like there's no way Tibbs was going to say no to the Jimmy Butler deal if the Bulls uh demanded to keep the 16th pick so that was a that was a major screw up but big picture if you look at the forest in Chicago things are looking up and I am a, a huge fan of Lowry Markkinen and uh, I just think that like as far as as far as him and Chris Stapps and we this is actually going to dovetail nicely with the next question i i think it's not as crazy as as people might imagine you know i it, it seems like blasphemy to compare anybody to chris Dabbs, but lowry is a better shooter like full stop is gonna shoot in the low 40s from three his entire career and chris Stapps has yet to do that once and he's currently i think like for the last month porzingis shooting has been pretty bleak so I just think like you're not going to get a rim protector with Lowry Markkinen, uh, but it, in exchange you're getting a more refined offensive player on the perimeter, and uh, and he's also more athletic than anybody realized. And it, like, there's a lot to get excited about in Chicago, and I think a lot of people like whenever the Bulls come up say, "Oh man, they should be losing." This is like just like the Bulls, even when they try to lose, they can't lose. Like. I understand all that, but I think that like a core with Zach Levine, Chris Dunn, and Lowry Markkinen is not the worst thing in the world. Like there's there's reason for to be like genuinely optimistic. Uh, although I'm not that the Bulls aren't going to screw it up somehow, but Lowry's for real. Okay, so would you have made this same case after they basically lost by 40 points to the Indiana Pacers like two games ago? I mean, would you be having the same feeling of optimism after that? Or are you reacting to, like I said, the best moment of marketing? life? Who do you think you're talking to? I'm not watching the Bulls every night. I don't really, I'm not like riding the waves up and down. I just think that Lowry has like, you you watch him for 20 minutes and you see it. Like that guy is going to be an all-star level player. Chris Dunn, we've seen the Chris Dunn that people would have expected coming out of the draft. Zach Levine, I've been a fan of his game, but like possibly irresponsibly for the last couple of years, but I think he's going to be pretty good too. So all I'm saying is like the pieces are there. It's uh, night to night. Who knows what's going to happen with this Bulls team? But uh, I would, I would be saying it regardless of what happened against the Knicks this week. Okay, they've got the third worst record in the East. They've got the uh-huh. second worst offense in the entire NBA. Zach Levine's not good. He's never been good, and he probably will not be good once you factor into account defense, which <laughs> does matter. Now, okay. Markinen, as you mentioned, it does not belong in the same conversation as Porzingis just because he could shoot three-pointers. That's not how it works, okay? You have to play both sides of the basketball. 
Porzingis needs more help. There's no question that his offense will look better. His shots will come easier. His points will come easier once he has better teammates. But this guy is an excellent defensive player with a very clear defensive fit. Markkanen's not. Now, in terms of their three-point shooting, they're shooting the same percentage this season. Now, you're saying, oh, Markkanen's going to be some 45% three-point shooter. Maybe, but he hasn't done it yet. And I agree. He's got a nice, smooth stroke, but so does Porzingis. I mean, Porzingis, at his height, is the best shooter this NBA has ever seen. So... Uh, I don't wow. think you're that that is where you're going to dig into the stats here. They, they cannot be true that they're shooting the, the same percentage. Um, L- okay, uh, Lowry so- Markkinen is shooting 36.7 on three-pointers. Kristaps Porzingis is shooting 37% on three-pointers. Wow. Look okay. at that. So <laughs> <laughs> you what can I'm sit saying- out. No, I'm playing. <laughs> Look, I agree with you long-term. Who is a better sharpshooter? Markkinen. Now, everything else that Porzingis can do, especially on the, the defensive end, makes him a better player, and they shouldn't be in the same conversation right now, and the only reason why they are is because of that game. Now, in terms of like Porzingis's refinements, there's a lot. I mean, this guy still has a lot of work to do to, to become the best version of himself. Uh, certainly, he needs to become a better passer and playmaker for his teammates once he's drawing attention, reader of defenses. That stuff has to improve. Uh, I'm with people who say... Uh, his shot selection has started to waver a little bit because he started maybe to believe his own hype a little bit uh, after a really strong yeah. early start. I'm with the people who even question his body. You know, a guy like Mark is going to be easier, I think, for him during the course of his career to stay healthy uh, than it will be for a guy like Porzingis. So, I mean, that's one point in his favor. But come on, man, don't do this. Don't, don't overreact. <laughs> no, I'm not overreacting. I'm just, I, th- I think it's certainly a valid question. I mean, if you if you gave me a choice of which guy I would want on the Wizards for the next 10 years, I would take Porzingis in a heartbeat. But uh, by the way, I just pulled up Porzingis' numbers. The reason my perception is skewed is because Porzingis was lights out in November and hit 42% of his threes, hit 32% in December, and is 36% through January. So things have really like fallen off for him over the last month and a half. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. Look, if, if Porzingis is healthy, he will probably be the better player. Um, because you're, you also make the the point that like the Knicks have no idea how to get him the ball, where to get him the ball. You know, he's out there with Michael Beasley who like looks the other way half the time and just sort of leaves Porzingis flailing in the post. And, uh, I think I, I don't really trust Jeff Hornacek to, figure out the right answers to those questions either. So Porzingis like has questions to answer about his own game and the Knicks have questions to answer. All I'm saying is the Bulls, I'm not going to become a full-on Bulls believer, but some of this shit is real and it's it's kind of crazy how how much there is to be genuinely excited about after how dark it seemed this summer. So Yeah, I, I still don't know. But one thing I'd say is it's nice to see Chris Dunn having a better second season. He had a, just yeah. a mysterious rookie year the whole way in Minnesota, and that was frustrating. But to kind of tamper that again, I mean, he's leading the NBA's second worst offense, and he's about to turn 24. And I think people kind of forget that about him is that when you're looking at all this young Bulls core, well, he's not 20. You know, if Chris Dunn was 20 and doing what he's doing, I'd be really impressed. He's almost 24. So that takes some of the the glean off of, you know, his step forward in year two. I I guess so. I mean, what's his ceiling? Does it really matter? Yeah, it does because we're saying, okay, well, this emailer is suggesting that we have to rethink the whole Jimmy Butler trade and all of that. And so they move up a few spots to to get a nice prospect in marketing. These other pieces, to me, I don't see star potential. You look at Minnesota, that trade 
completely reinvigorated their entire franchise, turned it around. It's going to put them in the playoffs. We're discussing that, you know, how real they are in terms of you know, comparing to the likes of San Antonio uh, and everybody else. I mean, it's still a home run. Let's not rewrite history here. Yeah, that's fair. It was it it worked out for both sides, and I I think everybody on draft night thought it was wildly one sided in large part because they looked at Lowry Markinen and were like, "Holy shit, the Bulls just drafted the worst player in the in the top ten. He's going to be the next Channing Fry." And I think we've seen enough, regardless of where he fits next to someone like Porzingis, we've seen enough to to say that Lowry is going to be more than Channing Fry. Um, so all, all I'm saying is if your organization, your coaching s- system, your front office, your ownership poisons a relationship with a top 10 player, and then you do an adequate job of scrapping together a couple of future pieces, Dude. you don't get an award for that. That's not, Look, that's not I'm award not worthy. Here. Be a place that be, be a destination that, uh, you know, players want to play at superstar guys feel comfortable where you can really build around them and, and raise their games even higher. I mean, come on. The Bulls have made five or six horrible decisions since like 2011. I'm not out here advocating for an extension for Gar Foreman. I just think that this this is kind of a, a strange blind squirrel situation that has been pretty entertaining. But let's move on. Stick with the draft, though. Ronald says, hey, guys, I'm an American writing from America, and I wanted to hear your takes on players who are too often used as draft comps. For instance, every below-the-rim, ball-dominant guard gets compared to James Harden now. I've seen Markel Fultz, D'Angelo Russell, and even Grayson Allen get this comparison, and I feel like it does a disservice to everyone involved. It underrates Harden's ability to draw fouls, and it creates unreal expectations for the young guys. I remember this same thing happening with undersized shooting guards and Dwayne Wade. Like Randy Foy was the next Dwayne Wade, O.J. Mayo, and Rodney Stuckey. All of them were the next Wade. So what do you think? Do you have any favorite bad draft comps? What do you think, Ben? Um, the harder one that he mentioned is definitely one that, that jumps off the page. I mean, it's getting used to death. Uh, one that really bothers me is the Kevin Durant comps. Uh, uh-huh. It's like there's a lot of skinny teenagers, Andrew. <laughs> I was a pretty skinny teenager. You probably were too. That doesn't mean that – and even if we're bucket getters, that doesn't mean that we're the next Kevin Durant. It's totally unfair. And You know, the Ingram got that. Michael Porter has been getting that. I have no idea why. I mean, that one really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But uh, it seems like that one has started to get uh, beaten to death a little bit too. Another one from a few years ago that used to bother me was like Ray Allen. Uh, I know yes. Beal got the Ray Allen one. And it actually might have been okay in Beal's case. But I also feel like that is uh, kind of a go-to, the, the smooth shooting, uh, you know, two guard, just constantly being compared to Ray Allen. I mean, it kind of felt like a disservice to Ray Allen a little bit because young Ray Allen, I think people forget, was a pretty phenomenal all-around offensive player. I think he's more generally remembered for his late career work, you know, kind of like Celtics era on. Um, Mm -hmm. But those are two that kind of popped to mind. Yeah, I mean, I do think that this is an interesting phenomenon because it definitely happens, but then there are also cases where we almost overcorrect, like... It ha- and not to harp back on our guy Lowry Marketing, but it happened with him last year too, where like coming into the draft, people were throwing out the Porzingis comparison. They were throwing out the Dirk comparisons. And then you had a bunch of other smart people like pointing to his rebound numbers, pointing to his athleticism and say like, that is insane. Like, he sh- shouldn't even be in the conversation with Dirk or Porzingis. Like get out of here. 
And that ended up being a little bit wrong. Um, And so I think some of it is also happening with Trey Young this year where like people are throwing out the Steph comparison, which is obviously crazy because Steph, and the reason it's crazy is because Steph improved so much in the NBA that to, to where he basically has no weakness at this point. And uh, like projecting that kind of growth is, is just totally unfair to someone like Trey young. And I think you could say the same about Harden. Like he became such a smart player and so crazy efficient in everything he does that it's, it's unfair to like look at D'Angelo Russell and say, Oh, this is, this is what he's going to be. Um, but I do think that some of that makes sense if you, if you're trying to explain how someone impacts the game. And to me, like Trey Young's impact is like Steph and, uh, it's certainly in college. And that's like his value is going to be the same sort of gravity heavy value that you, that we see with Steph. And, um, so like, I guess what I'm trying to say is at the end of all this, some of the some of the superstar comparisons don't bother me as much. But the one that really drives me crazy every year is uh, and we mentioned it earlier. I can't stand when guys are compared to Kawhi Leonard because that is a is a development track that honestly, I would be surprised if we saw anyone make that kind of leap in the next like 25 years and yet every time there's a defense first wing who has like no skills whatsoever you'll read people on twitter being like i don't know he's got some Kawhi potential like let's draft him and see if we can teach him how to shoot and it just never works and so that's the one that we really need to like get out of our lexicon as basketball fans like stop comparing anyone to Kawhi Leonard because that's just not going to happen again like OG Ananobi could be solid is never going to be Kawhi Leonard it's a great point you know building off what you were saying on Steph and Trey you know if we're really parsing this I really prefer when people compare a player's specific skill to a predecessor as compared to comparing the player to the predecessor so for example with Trey Young you could say okay well his off the dribble three-point shot is like Steph you know you're getting a little bit more specific than just saying he's the next Steph because those comparisons and even like the Porzingis Dirk one those rely upon things like character health uh, consistency work ethic uh, durability, yeah. longevity, you know, really to become the next Dirk, it's almost impossible, you know, even for some of these young guys who are already showing all-star potential at an early age to become a top five, top six score in NBA history. The odds say you're not going to be that, even if you're a hall of famer in your own right. So again, it, when you're trying to make these comparisons and this goes for draft analysts, this goes for people at home, this goes for us on the show, it's much better to use that precise language to compare a skill between players or compare an offensive package rather than trying to compare the two people uh, as auras or legacies or phenomenon or whatever it would be because that's really where it starts to get unfair to the younger player. Yeah, I mean, basically using stars to compare how these guys might impact the game actually makes sense to me. Like even... With, with Markel Fultz and D'Angelo Russell, the, the Harden comparison isn't insane to me. Like, who, whoever compared Grayson Allen to James Harden should probably be arrested, but it makes sense for Fultz or D'Angelo Russell. And uh, But the uh. one 
Like I don't know. No, it, it, as as prospects though, I'm like I don't think you could project anybody to become like an MVP. But they the way they fit in an offense is similar in theory. Um, so I yeah, understand I don't know. I, I think you out. I think you're better off going the route that I was suggesting, which is okay, Russell. Uh, is ball dominant like Harden. He, you know, has kind of a herky-jerky offensive game, you know, pick-and-roll comfort like Harden. But, you know, past that to say he is a Harden-like offensive presence to me is completely inaccurate. Does not have the passing ability, playmaking skills. Uh, You know, he's not getting the free throw line nearly as much. Uh, he hasn't really shown that three-pointer knockdown. I mean, if you really go skill by skill by skill... Yeah, well, it's not fair to Russell. I mean, Russell's had no pro career whatsoever. We've been waiting for him to deliver on your expectations for three or four years. And part of the reason why is because he doesn't have a lot of those Harden-like skills. So if we used more precise language coming out of college and said he can do this like Harden, but there's a few other things that he can't, it would be more fair to him. And I think it would be more fair to us and the viewer as well. All right. My only argument is that we don't need to get so precise and so technical that we stop having interesting conversations about the players. Like, obviously, if we're being literal, it's unlikely that any of them are going to hit a top five in the league status. The only guy who is just, it's too ridiculous. You're too far out of bounds is like Kawhi is a top three offensive player and a top three defensive player. And it it emerged out of thin air. Like, that's not going to happen again. But um so are you defending the the michael porter kd comps then uh no i think kd is is in a similar category to Kawhi. where like i mean he's one of the 20 best players of all time so like let's not not get carried away i don't think it was it was too crazy with with ingram though and that was another one where you had a lot of people lecturing you saying like don't compare him to kd that is absolutely ridiculous like Nah, man. There are there are sh- shades of similarities to to their games. Like I, I think his ceiling is lower than Durant's, but they move in a lot of similar ways to where it's not crazy to to use that as a reference point in the conversation. Oh boy. Well, I could see everything I said over the last five minutes did not get through to you at all. That's fine, Andrew. I I do need to nitpick one thing. We're not here to have fun. Okay, come on. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like you're you're asking normal people to care about like Markel Fultz at Washington this year or DeAndre Ayton at Arizona. Like people are busy, man. I don't, I don't blame them for wanting to hear like what NBA player is this? Give me a star. Give me a reason to get excited. I understand that. All right. Fair enough. Um, All right. Let's move on. Let's finish up here with wrapping up our, our LeVar conversation. So, Yago says, in regard to the LeVar Ball pickle, I think the distinction that might have helped is the one that Steve Kerr provided. It's not the media's fault, but more us as a society that consumes him and creates his very base. Very Kardashian, or to my generation, very Jerry Springer. This type of expression and consumption is very similar to how this president made his way to the White House. He might be news, but I think we have a part in it and can change it. All right, so that was one of maybe 20 emails that we got about LeVar Ball, most of which were incredibly thoughtful, um, and there were all kinds of different opinions on this. Um, So, Ben, have you changed the way you think about this at all since our discussion earlier in the week? Not really, but I want to clarify one point that I, I made earlier this week. 
first of all, what was funny to me was how many people we had say, first time emailer, and I'm just going to email you to say why LeVar Ball is not news. Well, if it's the first time you've ever emailed a podcast and that's the point you're going to make, you're probably have fallen into the same trap uh, with the rest of us and that he actually is news. Uh, I, w- I would say this. A lot of people were frustrated uh, with my statements suggesting that he needs to be covered. Uh, I was mostly talking about this moment of his life and his career and his son's career, given the stage that the Lakers are on, given that his son was the number two pick, given that he has built himself up into this off-court uh, story. And I think if you look at the events of this week with his sons you know, playing on this live stream in Lithuania and 100,000 people watching it online... I mean, guys, uh, no matter how much you dislike him, you have to admit that at this point he is news. Now, the the people who are coming at the media and criticizing them in general for building up LeVar, there are fair points that are being made there for sure. I mean, if you go mm-hmm. back and you're saying, we're just going to randomly put him on our morning uh, TV show when Lonzo is, you know, one of, you know, the top 10 prospects in college and he hasn't really established himself, he's not a professional player, and just let LeVar turn loose and give his takes on everything and scream at Michael Jordan and everything else. Uh, I can understand where people uh, start to feel that Trump-like anxiety where like, why are we just airing all of his, uh, you know, campaign rallies unfettered on TV? That's not the way the media should be used. I definitely hear them. Uh, I would say in defense of us, I don't think that we ever did that. I think the only times that we've ever talked about him, he has crossed that threshold Uh, into doing things that were newsworthy or was in the middle of newsworthy events. And I think in general, uh, SI has a pretty high standard in terms of what we regard as being worthy of our full media attention. But I still don't believe there's any way you could say, you know, if you're ESPN, you have basically unlimited resources. You've got dozens of writers and LeVars in Lithuania. I mean, to me, it's clearly a story. Whether it should be, uh, maybe it shouldn't be, but it definitely is. They have to cover it. And, you know, maybe they were uh, a big portion or an outside portion of turning him into a story, uh, but you can't put that, you know, genie back in the bottle. It's too late. And, you know, a lot of people were, were kind of asking me to be more hopeful, you know, going uh-huh. forward. And, uh, you know, this, you know, this is the time standards. where, yeah, like, you know, kind of, you know, we could do better as a society. Well, I would love to believe that, uh, you know, in general, I'm a pretty optimistic person. Uh, but when you look at how things have gone here in the last 10, 15, 20 years in the media, in politics, in lots of other, uh, you know, different ways, it brought on, I think, in part by technology and social media, I don't really see the cause for hope on that, you know? And so my message to people is, you know, have intelligent conversations, support the media sources that do the type of work that you like, read and click and, you you know, subscribe and all of those other things. Uh, and that, that's sort of your part, but I think it's bigger than us, you know, and I don't even think, even if we put all of our might together, Andrew, even if we were trying to be like, <laughs> uh, you know, crusaders, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I just, I don't have that level of hope and maybe that makes me cynical. Uh, it's possible, uh, but that's sort of where I'm at. I, I don't know, man. I think number one, you're underestimating the influence of the open floor globe on the entire, on changing the entire media landscape in the United States. Uh, I think we could do it. But uh, to push back on one thing you said, part of it is news. I think what LeVar Ball is doing with his sons in Lithuania is is actually like interesting from a certain angle. And, and you could absolutely convince me that sending someone over there to cover it makes sense. 
but sending someone over there to then ask them about the the Lakers and what what Lavar's like takes from the couch are doesn't really make sense to me. I don't think that is news, and I think that that's where you start to lose me. And honestly, I would have been more aggressive with my criticism earlier in the week, but I hadn't really followed the story very closely, and that and I was pretty reluctant to agree with basically Rick Carlisle and a bunch of internet commenters, but I think Steve Kerr did a really good job as, as usual, he did a really good job sort of explaining why a lot of people are uncomfortable with this. And I think he's right that it's not entirely the media's fault. It's a, it's a byproduct of changes in technology, which has have skewed incentives for media. And uh, like Ben Thompson from Stratechery wrote an excellent newsletter about that this week explaining how Facebook and and this the internet we have today has sort of altered the equation for media and made it harder for them to play gatekeeper for various stories and uh and and people like LeVar Ball and Donald Trump so check that out although that's for subscribers only but check out Stratechery in general it's a really solid site um and that every time I read one of their articles I come away feeling smarter. But uh, in general, like I get what you're saying. To me, I've seen a number of people, a number of writers frame this as sort of criticizing the media for covering LeVar Ball is, is akin to media censorship. And I just think that that is, is really wrong. Like it's not media censorship to call for more editorial discretion uh, in this case. And, and I think that that's a responsibility that's going to fall to mainstream media more and more as we go forward because I think the, the, the landscape just doesn't totally make sense right now and you're going to need places like ESPN to say, look, there there is low-hanging fruit here, but we're going to let that be covered by like Twitter and Reddit. Like I, I think ESPN should have higher standards than the front page of Reddit. That's, that's what I would say. And they do. There's no question about it. And I think, you know, you're even pushing back on this LeVar's hot takes about the Lakers from Lithuania thing. Well, let me ask you this. Once he gets asked that question, how are you going to come on a podcast two days later and ask if it's going to get his son traded? You know, I mean, again, aren't you part of the problem in that situation? If his, if his opinion doesn't matter, why are you extrapolating from his opinion at all? And if his opinion does matter, then shouldn't it be out there in the public uh, discourse? If you're willing to suggest, hey, this guy might get traded because of something his dad said or the distraction well, he's creating wait, wait. or whatever to be else. Clear, to be clear, I think Lonzo should be traded because he's not good enough to win with Paul George and potentially LeBron next year. That's why I think Lonzo could end up getting traded. But why, I, why did you ask that question at that moment? moment though because i was curious whether this made it any more realistic for you i do think that like look all of this is insane nobody is really equipped to handle this and the people who who look at the lakers and be like a stable organization would know exactly what to do on this like who what organization in the league would be better equipped to handle lavar ball i just don't really know i mean this is all kind of uncharted territory so it seems a little bit unfair to expect them to like handle this and know the playbook uh, from here. I do think that like the noise isn't easy to deal with, and like and you said, like it could affect his value around the league, and I think that's also really true as well. I guess my final thought on this would be 
no one is uncompromised. No matter who you think is out there trying to take a high horse or high road or whatever, everybody's kind of implicit in the same game. Uh, yeah, you know, remember, like I get, I get really frustrated at the New York Times for some of the things that they've done recently in terms of their coverage of the White House. But at the same time, they've got dedicated writers doing unbelievable deep coverage on very, very important national security issues we would never get if not for them, right? I think you can say the same thing about ESPN. Some of their feature writers and the work that they do on a consistent basis uh, more than justifies some of the things that people get frustrated about and, and, and put their attention towards too. And by the way, like not to get super deep and everyone's holding up Steve Kerr as like the avatar uh, of, you know, the right way on this stuff. But like you look at the Warriors, I mean, you could really write a book like the Warriors way on how to live your life and their principles and joy and, uh, you know, egalitarianism and all of this. But they're compromised, too, man. They're still run by a bottom line. They're taking a franchise that's been in you know Oakland, the East Bay for decades, beloved by, uh, you know, a fan base that you know certainly is not nearly as. Uh, financially well off as a San Francisco community. They're taking that fran- uh, franchise, they're moving it to San Francisco, and they're going to increase the ticket costs. They're going to have, you know, essentially their version of personal seat licenses. Uh, and they're essentially, you know, if you want to boil it down, they're, they're taking from the quote unquote poor and giving to the rich. Now, they have yeah. very good reasons for doing it. They're doing it the right way in terms of self uh, financing their uh, arena as much as possible. They've tried to, you know, keep, uh, you know, ties with that Oakland community, making the jersey and everything else. But look, nobody is ab- above criticism here, including the Warriors, including everybody else. So uh, that's why I'm cynical, you know, because mm-hmm. even the people that we hold up, you know, as sort of, you know, idols of society, people who we certainly respect on a very, very deep and personal level, everybody's complicit in a broader game. And, and that game, unfortunately, a lot of times is uh, making money and staying employed. Yeah, and and I don't mean to lionize Steve Kerr either. I I just think that his point makes a lot more sense than what Rick Carlisle was was trying to say. Like I don't think of this as some grave war on NBA coaches. I don't think that's why it's worth our attention, but I do think that Steve Kerr is right that it's a societal issue and it's something that we all are going to have to grapple with and you're right that we all play a role in it. Um I mean us more than most as media members. I, the la- my last point would be that LeVar Ball individually, I don't have a huge problem with because I think, I, I think if I were in the same room with him, we would get along. I think I, I, I like a lot of what he's tried to do. Uh, he's interesting. It's more the way he's covered and his sort of indisputable relevance is really frustrating to me. And I, I think... If I have a problem with any anything related to the LeVar Ball, it's probably only because he is just a reminder of how screwed up society and tech and the media look right now. And uh, but LeVar Ball on an individual basis, like if if I meet him at, at summer league, I would love to just hang out and and like catch up for twenty minutes. But uh, it's it's the conversation around him that is really unbearable sometimes. Yeah, but, I think people need to realize like. We don't, what's news is not necessarily what we want to be news. And a lot of times we might be more frustrated than anyone by what actually is news, but we can't ignore it. Yeah. Well, listen, man, we have a lot more emails to get to next week. I feel like we've, we've had the, the LeVar Ball discussion and probably won't need to discuss that again for another six months until, until the Lakers trade him in June to sign LeBron. Um, but for now, I think we're good, and we can come back next week. We got to talk all stars. We got to talk uh, 
all kinds of, I don't know, a lot of different things. I'm ready for it. Andrew, uh, until next week, guys, be sure, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. If your take is that LeVar is not news, we've already heard it, so don't send those in. But all other takes <laughs> are completely welcome. Uh, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, Ben.Golver on Instagram. Andrew, uh, until next week. All right, man, take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.